The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 12. Hear the word of the living God. Now these are the names of the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon with all of the Arabah eastwards. Sion, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aroah, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the, ter- the boundary of the Amorites, the Ammonites, sorry, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth eastwards, and in the direction of Beth Jeshimosh to the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southwards to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. And Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei and ruled over Mount Hermon and Saleka and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Markathites and over half of Gilead and the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and all the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Giza, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Giza, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasheron, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Aksaf, one. The king of Tanakh, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kedesh, one. The king of Jokniam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphath, Dor, one. The king of Goyim in Galilee, one. The king of Terza, one. In all, 31 kings. Let's pray, shall we? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so, living God, as we lift our eyes to you, help us, we pray. And so speak that we, your people, your beloved people, your undeserving and sin-stricken but forgiven and spirit-filled people may be renewed and made more like our Lord Jesus as we read the words which his spirit inspired and reflect on them this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. So those of you who are regulars here at All Saints will know that we began uh, working our way through the book of Joshua a few months ago. And um, there are a couple of things that may have made you nervous if you had any familiarity with this book before we began. Previously, and we've discussed this in some detail, there's all those battles which we had to get through, and obviously that makes people nervous. What on earth is that doing in the Bible? It's not obvious to understand the purpose of those wars and so on, especially since they're commanded by the living God. But you remember, we worked through those. Uh, We found in them... 
God's final judgment on the Canaanite nations for their idolatry and their violence and their brutality. Remember the um, uh, altars bearing the remains of child sacrifice that have been dug up by archaeologists in the land of Canaan, dating from the era before the conquest. God does not take kindly to nations that butcher their children. And we recall that the doors always open. They could repent, as indeed some people did. Rahab and her family turned back to the Lord. But in the end, the Lord's goal is to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to give the land as a gift to his people and to have them establish there a kingdom of righteousness. And so throughout the book of Joshua, we're seeing this kind of pattern whereby the church is being shown how it is that we are to fight for our inheritance. In Christ, we've received the world. And our task is to fight for it. That is to say, to lay down our lives for it, like Jesus fought by laying down his life for the world, so that we may here, by God's grace, establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice and truth in preparation for his return, which will come when every power opposed to him, apart from death, the last enemy has been conquered. So that's the first great angst-inspiring nervousness about the book of Joshua, not dealt with, but at least addressed. But today, of course, we come to the second, which we've not talked about before. And you may have been wondering, seriously, Pastor, are you going to read all that? Uh, The remainder of the book of Joshua is full of texts which, not to put too fine a point on it, don't look exactly like inspiring sermon material. All these lists, verse 10, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, One, the king of Jarmuth, one. Please don't stop, Pastor, we're enjoying this so much. And this is just the beginning. If you look through the rest of the book of Joshua, you will find lists of defeated kings, you will find lists of tribal inheritances, you will find lists of cities in different regions, and lists of Levitical pasture lands, and lists of cities of refuge, and all. One commentator writes, and I quote, this doesn't exactly engulf the reader in a glow of devotional warmth. And I don't know how you felt as I was reading through. I don't know how many mistakes I made. I counted three or four. I'll have another go if you really want me to, but I think we can probably leave it there, can't we? It's also, like, there's a practical issue, isn't there? It's not obvious the day-to-day relevance of something like this. The same commentator who commented on the um, devotional uh, difficulty of a text like this also pointed out that it doesn't exactly help prepare you for a week at the office or a day on the tractor to know that the king of Jarmuth was conquered. Thank you, Lord. And so it may be tempting uh, to skip over these chapters, but I don't think it will come as you uh, much of a surprise to know that we're not going to do that. What's actually going to be our experience, I pray, today is a number of things. Firstly, we're going to have a chance to re-examine our convictions about Scripture uh, in relation to a text that tests those convictions more strongly than most. And then once we've done that, we'll just think more specifically about this chapter. And it seems to me, by God's grace, we may discover not only that this has implications for our world, but this has implications for us. This has, by the end of today, I hope that this will actually, this text will have addressed the thing that everybody has been talking about for the last 10 days or so, the recent Supreme Court decision. But to get there, uh, we have to do the long, hard work of just thinking, okay, let's think about what kind of a book Scripture is. Let's begin just by taking a step back and thinking, What do we expect to find when we open the Bible? The guiding principle with which I hope you were wrestling as I was reading the King of Libna 1. 
the king of Adullam, one. The guiding theological principle is, obviously, that this is the inspired, precious word of the Spirit of God. Paul remarks, doesn't he, to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. He doesn't say, well, the New Testament is really useful. You want to wait till that's written. And then there's some stories back in the Jewish Torah, like the book of Daniel, that's kind of fun, and the story of Joseph, and uh, maybe the Ten Commandments, you should pay attention to them. So some of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for... No, he doesn't say that. He says, all Scripture, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Psalm 119, how I love certain bits of your law. (laughs) No, how I love your law. And it... There is something about Scripture which has a different character to any other writing, and that's one of the challenges to us. We approach this, and it's like it's not obvious how it is, but we have to approach it with the conviction that it will be. Now, that doesn't mean that the meaning of Scripture will always be obvious. Don't worry if it wasn't kind of leaping out at you off the page. You know, you read the book of Mark, or you read Philippians, or Colossians, or something, you very readily see yourself in those texts, yeah? It's not difficult very often to see and to feel the Word of God speaking to you. And don't worry if it's not obvious how this does, but we have to approach it without that sense of dismissive skepticism that will say, well, this obviously can't mean anything. Also, just a more subtle point, we shouldn't expect necessarily to find the same concentration of theological detail. Now, Pastor Neil and I in preaching through books like 1 John or uh, James. Uh, 1 John, Pastor Neil's been preaching recently. I've been preaching through James a few months ago. I mean, we'd go really slowly, like two, three verses at a time, and find so much stuff there that I had to come back next week and finish it off. And it shouldn't unnerve us too much if we don't find quite the same concentration of detail. But we've got to remember that this, we can't just dismiss this as like 10 chapters of editorial details. Uh, It's true, Um, the people of Israel had administrative and civil documents, and in fact some kind of officials and administrators are mentioned in Scripture. Shebna is mentioned in the book of Isaiah, Um, and there's a bunch of other people who would have kept documents with lists of tribal inheritances in them. The puzzle is not that Israel would have kept such lists, the puzzle is that they found their way into the inspired Scriptures. And so we're not at liberty just to do what it's tempting, and some, one or two commentators sadly do, say, well, this is kind of administrative details, and you can tell they're kind of he- eager to skip on to chapter 22 where something interesting seems to happen again. If we can't see anything useful here, we need to look harder. I think of this, I was talking to somebody earlier this week, I think of this as a kind of stress test for our doctrine of Scripture. You know, like, um, uh, in the wake of the financial crisis, um, governments all over the world stress tested banks in their countries. You know, what's going to happen to this bank if we put it under pressure? Everybody knows that the bank can function completely fine if everyone's making loads of deposits and nobody wants their money back, but what happens if there's a run on the bank or something like that? Can the bank withstand it? Turns out that lots couldn't. Well, everyone, I I suspect, everyone, nearly everyone in this room, if if we asked you to scribble down a couple of sentences about scripture, we would get entirely orthodox, faithful, evangelical, historic, reformed, biblical doctrines of Scripture, times a couple of hundred and something. As soon as you start thinking about Scripture in general, and you're allowed to think about your favorite passages, what happens when you stress test your doctrine of Scripture by exposing it to Joshua chapter 12? Well, we'll discover today. 
Uh, it's intriguing, just a couple of brief points before we jump into the, the text itself. Do you know how much of the Bible is composed of lists like this one? If you go through the Bible, and I actually did this, I, I went through the whole of the Bible, it's been a long week, okay? Um, and I counted all the chapters uh, which contain lists of people and lists of places and lists of things which you, you know, when you're doing your personal Bible reading, you kind of eyes glaze over and you sort of skip on to the next chapter or you skip on several chapters if you happen to be in First Chronicles. If you gathered together, if you gathered together all the lists in the Bible and put them all together in one book, that book would be 41 chapters long. The fifth or sixth longest book, it'd be about the same length as the book of Job, 42 chapters. Only Psalms, Genesis, Isaiah and Jeremiah would, ble- would beat it. it. It's clear that this is something that matters. And it must have mattered. Just think to yourself, let's take half a step back towards the ancient world for a second. It must have mattered to those scribes who copied out one letter at a time painstakingly, again and again. No printing, no photocopying. It must have mattered to them. They must have thought it would matter to the people who would have read it that they bothered to put such intense, careful labor over so many generations so that we've actually now got it preserved. It was thousands of years from when these words were first penned to when printing made reproducing them easy. And for generations, people cared about this. And the first generation, the people cared about it so much that somewhere in here, we should come with, well, we've got to find something. So what is it? I want to suggest that there are three themes that an ancient Israelite, the generation of Joshua or the next two or three generations, would have been gripped by as they read this chapter. And I want to spend a bit of time on each of them. And the first one is this. The first thing that they would have been struck by, an ancient Israelite reading this chapter, Joshua chapter 12, they would have been reminded of the unity of the whole of the people of Israel. Really, that's what's going on here. The first thing. It's a reminder of their unity. Just look with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, just open them up again. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. Remember, Israel's crossed over the Jordan. They're on the west side of the river Jordan. Well, this is beyond the Jordan in the east towards the sunrise. Sunrise is in the east from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastwards, and you're sitting there, you're reading it to your kids, okay? Like a generation or so after Joshua. It's like family Bible time. And it's like, Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aroa, which is from the edge of the valley of the Arnon, from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, to the boundary of the Ammonites, that's half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth, and etc. Chapter verse 4, and Og, king of Bashan, and so on. And you know what your kids would say? They'd say, what? Who are they? There are Israelites on the other side of the river. You know what it's like when you um, try and send your relative something for um, their birthday, and you, you know you're on some mail order website, and you kind of you bought a gift, and then you you, you click down to the checkout, and it's like um, you've got to enter their zip code before it'll tell you how much it's going to cost to ship it there, and you've been kind of generous, and it's like you've been $45.65 for the gift, plus tax, it's like $50. And then you enter their zip code, and they live in Alaska. And suddenly it's like $420. It's like, because Alaska is a long way away. It's even a long way away for us today, right? 
What's going to happen over the next few generations of the people of Israel as two and a half tribes, notice, end of verse 6, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are separated from the main body of the people of Israel. The main body of the people of Israel are in Canaan on the west side of the Jordan. Everyone else is, those two and a half tribes are on the east. They just would have felt like half a world away. If you think it's difficult to ship a book to Alaska, imagine transportation across the Jordan. The costs of just doing commerce and just the difficulty of maintaining relationships, just over a few months or years, never mind a few generations, would have made it very, very easy for the people in the, the, where the action is near Jerusalem, on the west side, all those westerners, to forget about all the people out there in the east. And in fact, you can see from a very early stage, uh, after the settlement of the land, there were tensions developing between the people on the east side and the people on the west side. In fact, it started back in the book of Numbers um, when uh, the Reubenites and uh, and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, when they first said, we want to stay here, and everyone thought that they were just wanting to separate themselves off and not bother to fight for their brothers, and they had this big bust-up. No, no, we're going to come across and fight with you, then we'll come back here. And that's all sorted out. But then later in the book of Joshua, in Joshua 22, they build, the people on the east side, they build an altar at the border of the Jordan, and all of the people in, on the West go completely nuts. Like, what are you doing? Building an altar, alternative site of worship. And they're like, no, 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 it's not, we're not going to worship here. This is a memorial altar to remind us that we're part of the same people as you, in case you forget. You see, already, just within a few years, you've got the tension starting to develop because it is perilously difficult to remember, and this is the key point, It is perilously difficult to remember that we're all part of the same community when we are occupied by different things, when we live different lives, when we live in different places. It is perilously difficult. And any Israelite reading this would have been reminded, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you, Dad, for reminding me. I've got brothers and sisters out there in the East with whom I'm one. I think it's really difficult for us. um, America is a long way from anywhere else, as we discovered when we tried to get here. And it's kind of intriguing to compare news coverage, world news coverage in America, with world news coverage back in England. It's it's nobody's fault. It's just um, American news is very America-centric, whereas Britain is just this piddling little island in the North Atlantic somewhere, which hardly matters at all, and even the British news media realise that. So we have, there's just news there, it's it's more of a kind of global perspective, because we're closer to those things. There's so much that doesn't actually affect us here, but that matters across the world. It certainly matters to our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. It's why I've recently started, um, those kind of emails I send out on Monday or Tuesday, occasionally I'll include some news about like our missionaries overseas. I hope you pray for them. Um, our church administrators send out uh, an email with people to pray for overseas, members of our denomination, missionaries that we support. How easy it would be to find ourselves cut off from them. Or think of our denomination as a whole. Do you think of the CREC as an American denomination? I mean, it's kind of hard not to, because it's got lots of churches in America, and, and we're in America, and, well... We've got about a dozen churches in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, Japan. 
if all those people in the Philippines who were at the last Presbyterian Council meeting, if all those churches join, we will be about one-third non-American. We, we, we'll still be majority American as a denomination, but we won't be the American denomination with a couple of mission churches. Like, there are 2,000 people in those Filipino churches. There are 20 churches, averaging about 100 people each. And you know, because I did this on the podcast a few months ago, I spoke with Pastor Celso Namuko about their desire to, they're exploring joining us. How will it affect our, our self-assessment, the way we think about ourselves, if, if we become a truly international denomination in that kind of way? And who knows what may happen in 10, 20 years' time? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there are CREC churches springing up in South America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and will we still think of ourselves as Americans? It's, it's actually really, really difficult, even for ministers, pastors in the denomination, to avoid making mistakes like this. Um, when Pastor Neil and I were at the council meeting, so every three years, um, if it's not interrupted by a global pandemic, uh, every three years, uh, all of the presbyteries in the denomination get together, as much as we can, um, for a council meeting. And that happened in October 2021. And we had this long discussion at one point during the council meeting. And I was spectating. I'm not a member of the kind of... the, the smaller council, but we're all, all the presbyters are allowed to listen. And there was this long discussion about when exactly should the presiding minister, Pastor Virgil Hurt at the moment, when should he make a statement on behalf of the whole denomination? In other words, when do things happen that are significant enough that we want our presiding minister, like the public face, the representative of our denomination, to speak to the world on our behalf? And that's happened like four or five times in two decades. 9-11, Obig fell. It happened yesterday because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, it happened. Uh, there was a statement made during COVID. Okay, so we're having this long conversation about, about um, what things are important enough to us that we want you, Pastor Hurt, to make a statement on our behalf. And all the time, there's our delegates from Eastern Europe who are on this massive screen in the Church of the Redeemer in Monroe, um, Louisiana. And one's from Japan... One's in Ukraine, there's one guy in Poland, I forget where the other guy is, I think he might also have been in Poland. And then uh, there's this pause in the conversation at one point, and one of the men said, and I quote, Will the CREC make a statement if Russia invades Ukraine? And we're all like, yeah, we hadn't thought of that, because we're, we're all thinking about COVID. That was in October 2021. Can you see how easy it is for us to... I mean, it's not like our concerns don't matter. But if Canada had invaded the United States, I bet somebody would have made a statement. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm, well, I'm kind of blaming all of us, really. <laughs> how easy it is to forget that we're one with our brothers and sisters because we don't share their same concerns day-to-day, -day, especially geographical separation, but also other kinds of separation. Uh, the kingdom of God is not the same as America. So that's the first thing. Let's be reminded, look, all these people you've never met who are part of our community. That's the first thing that would have struck a Bronze Age Israelite reading this. Second thing, I think, I want to deal with this one more quickly to leave us time for number three. The obvious thing, this is a list of things for which to thank God. I mean, look at all those kings. We haven't got a king. 
But our God has, on our behalf, conquered 31 of them. And there's a couple of guys over the other side, 33. I mean, Sihon and Og. Og is uh, mentioned back in the book of Deuteronomy as having a bed which is like, has to be made of iron, and it's like the longest bed in the world because he's so big. He's the last of the Rephaim. And his kingdom was overthrown by the power and might of the living God. So this is a, it's a reminder of God's power. It's also a reminder of God's grace because there are a couple of... There are a couple of names in this list in the second half of the chapter which would have been a bit embarrassing. So, for example, um, AI. And everyone goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, the memory of AI shows the foolishness of the Israelite heart, doesn't it? Remember with Achan and taking the plunder for himself and so on. And so, there are these reminders scattered through. I mean, the other one, another one, Hebron, verse 10. I mean, we just skipped over that, didn't we? Look, verse 10, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won. We all kind of, Hebron, hold on a second. Hebron, what's so significant about Hebron? Well, when the spies first went to enter the land to check out whether they could conquer it in Numbers chapter 13, they said, this place is awesome. It's going to be wonderful. Look at, look at the fruit. And they've got this bunch of grapes that's like eight feet long and has to be carried by two people on a massive pole between them. This is going to be wonderful, but we can't go in. Sorry. Because there are these massive giants there, and they're going to have these massive armies, Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai, and they live in Hebron. We'll never be able to conquer the Hebronites. The king of Hebron won. Done. Taken. Or rather, given by the living God to his people. There are a couple of other details which I was mulling over these. I, I'm not sure right? But I'll throw it out there, and you can ask me in forum whether you think this is right. The numbers here look, look to me a bit puzzling, because you've got this list of 31 kings, and I did check, and it is 31 kings, and then it tells you in verse 24 that it's 31 kings, and you think, okay, are we supposed to be looking a bit more closely at the numerical details of this chapter? And so I scratched my head, and now I was reading Arthur Pink's, so I'm going to blame him for this one, okay? Arthur Pink's um, commentary or notes on uh, the book of Joshua, and he points out that when you turn Hebrew numbers into letters, 30 goes to the letter Lamed, which is an, a let, like a letter L, and 1 is like, it's, the, it's like a, it doesn't really make a sound, it's like, uh, but it has a vowel under it, which in this case would be an E. Eh. And so you put the 31 together, and the, the letters to which that number corresponds are L, which means God. So you've got a list of 31 kings, and then it says 31 kings. And you're thinking, L, 31, God is king. Maybe. If you buy that, which you should, but maybe you don't, but you can, tell, you can ask me in forum if you're not sure. And then you look at the kings themselves, and you think, are they arranged in any kind of order? And there's 31 of them, which means that there's one in the middle. Huh, so which is the one in the middle? And you go through and try and find the 16th. Anybody want to tell me what the 16th king is in the list, don't worry, I'll save us the time, it's the king of Bethel, which is the only place that's mentioned twice in the whole list. It's mentioned as the 16th king in verse 16, and it's also mentioned in verse 9, Ai, which is besides Bethel. So it's like, look out for Bethel, and so you're thinking, what does Bethel mean? Anybody? House of God. So God is king over the whole land, because 31 kings, and right at the center of the land is going to be the well, Bethel, house of God obviously, which is something to give thanks for, isn't it? This 
puny little band of disorganized, grumbling campers who spent 40 years in the wilderness complaining about everything are given a land over which God will be their king if they only just sort themselves out, and his house will be at the center. Thank you, Lord. So that's the second thing that might have been on their minds. I think probably would have been on their minds, even if the 31 thing and the Bethel thing are a bit sketchy. But anyway, number three, we've got, oh my goodness, loads of time left. Excellent. So take a seat. This list, and I think this is the thing that would have probably been the most daunting, most striking thing about um, this list. It represents a tremendous challenge for the first generation in particular and the second generation of people who actually have to inhabit this land. This is a list of places that have been given to you Places that you have conquered, which you now have to inhabit. You now have to rebuild. You now have to create a culture here. It's no use just, great, we've got this city. I'm just going to move in and watch telly for a few years. No, no, no. You, you look at these, like Jericho, well, there's some rebuilding to be done there. And all these other cities, they are pagan cities. With all their surrounding parcel land, it, it represents like a kind of blank slate on which you have to inscribe righteousness. You have to build a culture. You get this wonderful swathe of territory given to you as a gift by the living God. And so now it's time to get to work. That actually fits with the place of this chapter in the book of Joshua. There are no more battles, really. This is the end of the second major section of the book. The first section, section 1 to 4, is all about crossing the river. The second section, chapters 5 through 12, is basically about the conquest. And this is like the climax of the conquest. This is the land you've got. Now, I know chapter 13, verse 1, then makes you think, huh, what's going on? Don't worry, we'll do that next week. But chapter 12 is the climax. There's no more battles. Now, you've won the battle. And this is when the work really starts. And that would have been shouting and screaming at any Israelite in Joshua's day to whom you gave this list. Because he might just think, great, so me and my family and my clan, we're going to have the... the the town of Shimron Meron. Excellent. Where is it? And it's like, is that heap of ruins 40 miles that way? Best of luck. As Calvin wouldn't have said. The Lord be with you, as he probably would. And actually, this is reflected also in a significant change of vocabulary. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You see, I mentioned about the details. Look at some of the details here. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land. Now, that's a very significant uh, term. The, the verb to possess, yarash, has never been used before in the book except to describe what God is going to do. Never before in the book of Joshua has it been used to describe what Israel have done. They've done lots of striking the land, sometimes translated defeating, conquering. That's like all over the place, 15, 20 times, but never before have Israel possessed the land. Here, for the first time, it's given to you. And now the work begins. It's yours. So what are you going to do with it? And this is profoundly significant because it is consistently the shape of every aspect of our lives. In, just, I'm going to go through some examples in a minute, but just think in general terms, in every aspect of your life, you are given a gift. You're given life. Like you're born. Well, again, as Calvin wouldn't have said, Last 49 years, lucky you. Because although it's majority, it's still not to be taken for granted. You get a new job. 
or you begin a new relationship, or you get married, or you move to a new place, and all these things, you're, you're given something, and you have to get to work. In fact, it's actually the structure of Christian eschatology generally. A Christian, the, the shape of history is such that Christ has decisively conquered the nations. Has he not? He has been born and lived and died and overthrown sin and overcome death in his resurrection and he's now the king of all creation. For the first time since Adam, we have a king enthroned over the whole world. And so now the church just sits back and does nothing? No, no. Now the church has to get to work. The whole shape of history is oriented like this. So Christ has given to the church a gift and now the church must get to work. So just think about some of those examples. You see how many of these examples we can get through. Um, Imagine your work. Okay, so you get a job. Um, you just come out of college, or you get your first job as a teenager, or you finish high school and it's like, you're going to get to work? Excellent. So you just got to keep doing that now for 45 years. And it's a long grind, isn't it? You get to your mid-twenties, you're like, hmm, sheesh. Well, maybe, can, I, can I choose something else? And maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you just have to keep going. Um, it's interesting as well, if you consider the broader political climate, um, there's a, a Supreme Court case that's upcoming, which I suspect might be really significant. Back in February, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case of Laurie Smith. You heard about this? Laurie Smith is a web designer from Colorado, and she wants to create a website. She's a Christian. She wants to create a website, or a bunch of websites, which basically will uh, advertise Christian wedding uh, ceremonies, all the things you do when you get married. You know, you have like a gift list online, and she only wants to do it for Christians, or she only wants to do it in a way that's consistent with her biblical view of marriage. Okay. Now, in Colorado, the Tenth Circuit has already decided that you can't do that. That is to say, you may not discriminate against, let's say, a same-sex couple. And so, Laurie Smith hasn't started a company yet, but she's asking the Supreme Court to make a preemptive judgment to say, no, no, you can't use anti-discrimination legislation to compel me to speak. That's what actually the law seems to say, according to the Tenth Circuit in Colorado right now. So the Supreme Court has taken this up, and nobody's mentioning it because they're all over Roe v. Wade and Dobbs v. Jackson's women's health and so on. But give it a few months, and when the Supreme Court decides this, it could be tremendously significant because it could be, if, if Laurie Smith wins, it could be the case that determines that anti-discrimination legislation cannot be used to stop Christians expressing profound, conscientious disagreement with, let's say, same-sex marriage. And of course, if she loses, well, that could be quite significant, couldn't it? You might find that in your workplace, you're effectively being compelled to say things that are anti-Christian. So it's a big deal. Okay, so let's suppose she wins. Great. Does that mean the battle is won? No. It means that the challenge has just started. Now we actually have to go and be Christian in the workplace. Can you see the issue? And how easy it is in so many of these situations to think that once the decisive decision has been made, we're home and dry. Once the victory has been won, we've done it. No, 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 look. These are the list of the kings that have been conquered. Right, now. Can you see? You've got to get to work. In every area of life, think about marriage. You meet the man of your dreams. And he's not already married to somebody else. And you're like, yes! And one thing leads to another. And, and then like, the wedding bells ring out. And it's like, wonderful! 
you're just beginning an extremely long road. And all the married couples are like, yeah. Yeah, because that married life, and especially when kids come along. So you have your first child, and th- this is almost the best example of this. Like, what a precious gift. You have this little, like, where's, where are the gills? There he is, he's holding the looking. And you're like, you're home and dry, aren't you? Yeah, because you've got a little, no, you're not home and dry at all. Because these diapers changed every 20 minutes, otherwise things are, home is really wet, and it's just, didn't even plan that. That works quite well, doesn't it? You see, the battle just begins. At the point where you've won this tremendous, received this tremendous blessing. Education, since 1994, really significant Texas Supreme Court case that established the right of people to home educate their children. So if you're a Christian, you want to educate your kids in a situation where you can decide what they learn, you're allowed to do that now. Excellent. Victory won. (laughs) No way. I mean, yes, victory won. And so now you're 18, 20, 25, 30, 40 years of hard work begins as you start doing what you're now allowed to do. Can you see, in all these domains, the, the victory is profound, and it doesn't bring an end. It's a beginning of the challenges that lie ahead of us. And so that is obviously the case in the one thing that everybody has been talking about for the last 10 days. Correct? The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a tremendous victory. But it's not the end. It's certainly not the end in all those states which will produce or have produced their own legislation uh, permitting abortion. And, and more obviously, like in, in our context, what about all those unwanted children? This is, it didn't take Christian commentators very long to spot this, did it? We're on the brink. Just think about what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years. We're on the brink of a seismic demographic shift in Texas and other parts of the United States where abortion cannot now be procured. We are going to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, over the years, millions of children born to parents who in their half hearts didn't want the kid. It gets worse. Uh, Over 50% of abortions performed up till this point in the US were carried out on the poorest 10% of women, so below the federal poverty line level. So that means income of less than 13,000 a year for an individual person. So now, none of them work for Disney or JP Morgan and are going to get shipped out of state so they can get the thing done. Those ladies are going to have their children. And they're the least able financially to care for them. They're also likely the least able in other ways because 85% of women who seek abortions are unmarried and 55% of them don't even have a partner whom they're living with. This is a predominantly poor, single mum issue. So here's the challenge for All Saints Presbyterian Church for the next four or five decades. Poor, single mum walks in. And not just one... Is this the kind of place where we'd make her feel welcome, or would, or would we just make her feel really poor and single? Can't, you know, the Supreme Court can't fix that. That's us. That's us. Now, I don't think we, I want to beat up the, the Christian church on this, that historically the data suggests that Christians have actually done quite well at caring for the unborn. Pregnancy Help Centre... 
Um, uh, Christians foster children at a far higher rate than the bulk of the population. Um, 5% of Christian families adopt children. The rate is 2% in the bulk of the population. So two and a half times the rate of the bulk of the population. Uh, That's the Christian adoption rate. I I don't think that's bad. I think that's great. I mean, whether it's enough... Maybe it's the case that really what we need to do is to think, thank you, Lord, for this tremendous victory, and now we need to step up, don't we? Historically, again, just think scripturally, it's very easy to think of examples where the people of God won tremendous battles, isn't it? Moses and Pharaoh, Joshua and the Canaanites, David and Goliath, you know, Great victories. Later in Israel's history, you've got not so much military victories, but other victories. Daniel, and you've got Nehemiah, and you've got these heroes. The heroes of the faith, in our mind, are often the the people who win the victories. Now find me an example of uh, an era of Israel's history where they were faithful to two or three or four generations. Can you find a single example anywhere in the Bible? So back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says that the Lord your God is uh, faithful and compassionate, Um, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love him. And by the time we get to the book of Joshua, you're on generation number two. Great work. You've got 998 to go. We're currently on generation 85. We haven't had a thousand generations yet. We have a long way to go. And our track record is patchy. So here's the challenge I want to leave you with. Um, Are we going to step up to the challenge. We've won the battle. We've won a whole bunch of battles. Most recently, we've won that battle. God has been kind. God has won a tremendous victory, and now the hard work begins. So are you ready? Are we ready to be faithful for a thousand generations? Let's pray. Merciful Father, you promise grace for a thousand generations to those who love you and keep your commandments. So teach us to keep them. Teach us to love you. Teach us to love each other. Teach us to love uh, this time we pray particularly and in the coming years as we will surely need it, those who are most vulnerable and most in need of love which they have not found elsewhere. That we may not just win this victory but by your grace, show ourselves able to carry out the hard task before us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.